0: Well, today we're going to begin our exploration of a rite in Tibetan known as Chod, pardon my pronunciation. It's also known as the yoga of subduing the lower self, or the doctrine of non-ego. Now, I've been familiar with this uh, practice. Uh, for over 30 years. I've been introduced to it by my guru, obviously, but you'll find that I'm not pulling, from my own personal experience, obviously, but not pulling from modern sources. I have gone and looked, and there's very few, like Tumal, there's very few modern sources that are actually sharing the teachings and not just trying to make oneself different so that they can... Um, I don't know, create a following or. The reason why I say that is, again, Chod is not this esoteric right. Um, It became somewhat esoteric because of the influence of the culture that surrounded him. But when we look at the right, especially since I'm going to break it up into pieces, when we begin to look at it, you're going to see shades of what is human, humanity. Certainly not um, esoteric by any means. Like the casino rite in Theravadin, arguably. In the Vesid- Uh The casino rite, uh, a, a practice of staring into campfire. That is as old as mankind itself. Right, Same as using the temporariness or even the... Uh, the uh, the impermanence and the uh, disgustingness of the the body itself as a practice for spiritual insight. But what I am going to draw on, and the reason why is because uh, it was once again recommended by a modern uh, practitioner, uh, originally introduced to the West by Ivan Wentz, uh, published under the title, variously published, but under the title, Originally, as Tibetan Yoga and the Secret Doctrines. And secret doctrines, but. <clears throat> and what they mean by that is like Tumo, the doctrine of psychic heat, or uh, the yoga of subduing the lower self, yoga being a practice. I've had this book along with pretty much every translation of the Bartle Fadul, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, Tibetan Book of. Natural liberation through the bl- between states. So, similarly, what I draw from here on the Chod is actually from a book that is more specifically uh, the fundamental essence of the subtle truth or Tibetan uh, heart drops from the great space. And you'll see why I translate that specifically later. So, I'm drawing from that, I'm drawing from some Alexander David Neal. So I'm able to pull directly from the French sources. Uh, Madame Blavatsky as well. Um, and I'm also drawing from another rare book that I uh, was uh, able to special order many, many decades ago. Uh, it's known as the Mahatma Letters to A.P. Sinnett. Now, we're not going to be going through that today um, because it's a little more complicated because uh, that book uh, doesn't use... Uh, the same words or the translations. So what we're going to go through is just look at uh, ego as taught by the, the lamas, to the Theosophical Society uh, well over a hundred years ago. But let's go on to Chaut, this practice of subduing the lower self or the doctrine of non-ego. Now in this book, uh, I will read. This book introduces the reader to one of the most marvelous of Tibetan doctrines called, pronounced, Chod, which here means cutting off with reference to egoism. That's why I'm going to go through the Mahatma letters and look at references to ego. And this is represented by the human fleshly form together with all its passions and karmically inherited predispositions constituting the personality. Now, you're going to see why I am talking about this first. Because you're going to see this. Karmically inherited predispositions constituting the personality. Now, that, of course, is a translation. But it is, I think, talking about the Alaya Vijnana, the storehouse that produces um, what we attach to. Latent impressions in uh, Vedanta... Alaya Vijnana in the Mahayana, and uh, I would say the Bhavanga Sotta or the Bhavanga Chitta uh, in Theravadin. But what I'm going to do is, uh, if I can, I thought I might just jump ahead uh, and read uh, one section to start with. Right? I was going to read the meditation to accompany the sacrificial offering. And the way it works is it's actually a dance. Like I said, we're going to look at that eventually, how these rites and rituals, ceremonial dances and and, um, offerings. Uh, In the Tibetan idea, uh, sacrifice was present prior to the arrival of Buddhism. So ceremonial sacrifice, not unlike renunciation and devotion in Vedanta and other uh, forms of Buddhism, um, but again, the meaning is the same, the process might be a little bit different, right? And uh, that's something we might talk about, uh, the Bon influence on this Chodrite, uh you know, with possibly a history of human sacrifice. But what I want to talk about is how universal these teachings are, not how different they are. So again, this is from the Yoga of Non-Ego, Chod. This is section 9, the state of mind necessary for this practice. Put thy mind in the quiescent state, right? So the calm, possibly even equanimous, equanimous state. Put thy mind in the quiescent state by blending thine intellect with the voidness. In brackets it says of intellect, right? Again, Blend thine intellect with the voidness, right? emptiness, shunyata. Thereby, the instantaneously occurring phenomena are certain to come. Again, instantaneous is thoughts and feelings, volition. And it goes on and says, And vindictive and malice, uh, malicious spirits are certain to be conquered. Uh, that's earlier where we talk about Mara. Mara, but just being uh, in almost any tradition... Uh, represents any ill that might draw you uh, from uh, your goal. Uh, Where is it here? Uh, Well, We'll talk about Mara another time. But I'll go on. Again, state of mind necessary for the Chod, right? In all this, renounce every feeling of fondness for or every attachment to life. So in all this, renounce every feeling of fondness for life. And in brackets, it says, for every attachment to. And that's the idea. That's what life is, a series of attachments. So the idea here is to renounce every feeling of fondness for life. And it goes on and says, It is of utmost importance for one to be inspired by the assurance and in brackets it says born. So the, insurance, the assurance born of the highest realization of truth. It is of utmost importance for one to be inspired by the assurance born of the highest realization of truth. At this time, slowly produced pho- phenomena resembling those produced instantaneously and instantaneously produced phenomena resembling those produced slowly, and phenomena of a mixed source resembling both uh, the other source. And when it talks about the two classes of phenomena, those are instantaneous and slowly produced. They're called mixed. partake of both of these. The example I would give is uh, instantaneous, as I said, were feelings and thoughts and preferences. Um, But what is uh, either mixed or, uh, more importantly, the... Slowly produced, so the example I would think would be a um, stone, a rock, sand, right? Because if you look, sand uh, is actually in a process of becoming stone again, and sand is actually uh, what used to be stone. Uh, used to be stone and was broken down. So you could see uh, a rock as either sand uh, that's yet to be, or it was once sand. Right It's the same as the uh, the parable of the bubbles or waves in the ocean, right Each wave looks individual, uh, but they're identical, made of the same uh, component parts. I mean this is this idea of Brahman nature and self it is not separate from others. But I will go on. And this is the important part. It says, after it mentions all these different phenomena, there's a reason why it mentioned this, and before, when it mentioned the highest realization of truth, it's getting at this here. And I quote, And hallucinations due to habit-shaped memories resembling the mixed phenomena may occur. And that's when it talks about the different phenomena. Then, having withstood successfully both classes of phenomena to the end, right? And what it means by the end is the experience includes all phenomenal experiences and the signs refer to the indications concerning the yogi's psychic development and progress, right? So what it's talking about here is you have um, withstood the influence of the self and the hallucinations themselves, arguably everything being a hallucination, right? And if you withstand those habit-shaped memories, those hallucinations. Till the end, you've achieved that liberation, that moksha. Arguably, you don't even have to be separate from the phenomena. Uh, there's a term in Vedanta uh, called uh, jiva uh, mukti, which is an individual uh, who is free from these Draws these uh, influences. Uh, a liberated individual still walks among. But I'll finish with the last couple of sentences. Uh, then, having withstood successfully both both classes of phenomena to the end, right? Because the the mixed is one or the other or both, right? So there's just two types. I go on. Thou shouldst analyze the experiences and the signs and continue practicing and what it means. As I explain the... Right? When you understand, you continue to see them for what they are. That's the practice. In short, the doctrine of eradicating egoism hath been utilized on the path. When thou hast comprehended the divine mind, hmm, which is that of the great mother, the transcendental wisdom. Right? So... In short, the doctrine of eradicating egoism hath been utilized on the path. So this is, again, what I've talked about. Up to the fourth jhana in Theravadin practice, you achieve equanimity and mindfulness. The first fetter to stream entry, sotapatthana, is this um, nature of self. So here we are, what I considered to be something missing from uh, the doctrine, not from the tradition, but maybe from what's being taught, is this oneness, this equanimity of self and others. So I will read again this doctrine of eradicating egoism lies in, and I quote, when thou hast comprehended the divine mind... Right? Divine in brackets, so Brahman, right? Because that's what Brahman means. If they translate Brahma Vihara into divine abodes, right? These are the compassion, equanimity that we're talking about, um, loving kindness, and uh, empathetic joy. These divine abodes, or what I always enjoyed translated from the Tibetan, are um, boundless energies, right? You can never have too much loving-kindness, right? Because where love uh, might smother or be selfish, kindness can step in and vice versa, right? Where kindness might end because of selfishness, love will take over. And again, I quote, when thou hast comprehended the divine mother, Brahman nature, divine mind, the divine mind, my apologies, which is that of the Great Mother, the transcendental wisdom. And again, don't trust me on this because I quote from the notes. They say the prana paramita. (laughs) I've taught this before. Prana being wisdom or mind, energy. Paramita being perfections or ultimates, almost like sattvic, sattva. And I go on and quote from the notes. As more fully explained in book Seven, following the prana Paramita, which we should be fairly familiar. You can just scroll back in my uh, podcast. I've talked endlessly about the prana Paramitas, which are the transcendental, the metaphysical, part of the northern Buddhist scriptures, right? This is what we're talking about here. Corresponding to the Abhidhamma Pitaka of the southern Buddhism, and is personified as the Great Mother. right? So the transcendental wisdom, prana paramita, the tatha garbha, garba, the storehouse of our Buddha nature, or perfection, alamnya uh, vijnana, which is one step above, uh, which arguably is the result of cessation, cessation of Naroda. Cessation of the alaya vijnana, that storehouse consciousness, these preferences that we build up, the Vedantic, uh, Vedic, uh, latent impressions that you'll read in the Gita. But again, when thou hast comprehended the divine mind, right? This is how to eradicate egoism, which is that of the great mother, this great divine mind. It's this oneness, the transcendental wisdom, the great goddess, the personification of non-ego. As the Tibetans teach, when you sleep, this consciousness just slips away. Upon this ritual hath been placed the triple seal of secrecy. And all that means is you need to be, um, uh, well, I'll read it actually. Um, It's just talking about proper time, Samaya, proper time or proper season. Right, So just someone who's prepared to understand this, right? The doctrine of non-ego is not, there is no self, as is commonly, commonly misunderstood. It's simply the idea of not all about oneself, but even more importantly is this divine mind, the great mother of transcendental wisdom, this Tathagatagarbha, this Brahman nature, this divine abode, truly, of uh, one's seat of consciousness. Not one's own consciousness, but that shared divine consciousness. But yeah, so, chapter one of Chod, right, Uh, the doctrine of non-ego.